Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up this series on uh, the upside-down kingdom, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. Uh, show us, Lord, where this teaching, this parable impacts our life, uh, confronts us, confronts our struggles with other people. And I know we can weaponize this text very easily and, and, and have it say things that it's, it's not meant to say. And so I pray that as we wade through this text, as we wade through the conversation, Lord, that it would be faithful to your heart, uh, faithful to your calling for us to um, embrace the forgiveness that you have bestowed onto us, but then be conduits of forgiveness to those in our life. And so give me clarity, give me wisdom, give us clarity, give us wisdom of what this is saying, but also what this is not saying. So Lord, I just pray that you would um, just superintend this conversation. Uh, and it would, it would challenge us. It would, uh, it would uh, reveal our hearts of, of where we have unforgiveness towards a brother or sister or someone else that needs to be taken care of, needs to be worked out, needs to be um, wrestled with. And that then we would take the necessary steps um, to, to rectify that if, if that is what you're calling us to. And so like, just give us wisdom, give us guidance in this conversation, we pray. Amen. So today we are wrapping up this upside down a series looking at the kingdom of God, which is, if you would, if you could do a percentage, if you will, of like how many times did Jesus talk about the kingdom of God? It would be the majority of the time. A lot of his teaching uh, was about this kingdom of God, or except in, in Matthew, as we've been looking at, he talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so. You know, what is it? What is this uh, kingdom of heaven, this universal rule and reign of God through Jesus? And so, again, we've, we talked about this idea that so often when Matthew says kingdom of heaven, what we hear is heaven, some other climb, some other place, this disembodied reality that you go to when you die. But that's not really what we're talking about. What we're talking about is it's an, this kingdom is an embodied now and not yet reality called the kingdom of God uh, that started with the incarnation, mission, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. That started with him and has run down the ages since and until he comes back to fully establish his rule and reign here on earth. And so, in fact, this kingdom is so central to, to his teaching, but to his life, and then by nature to our life, 
how we live our life. It's so central that after three, we take off three weeks to do other things, uh, uh, creativity, um, service, community, we're going back to it. In fact, we're going to spend probably the majority of our time this year looking at the implications of what it means to be kingdom citizens. In fact, that's actually the title of our next series. It's called Citizen. What does it mean to live as a citizen under the rule and reign of King Jesus? What does it mean to, to, live, in a, uh, to live in a culture that is not the kingdom? That has at times, um, yes, there are connections. But at times, a lot of times, there are like full-on frontal confront confrontations between kingdom and empire. Between the way of King Jesus and the way of this world. And so we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking what I believe is the, um, the, the citizenship declaration called the Sermon on the Mount. This is what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God in the everyday, ordinary spaces of life. And that's where we're headed for the rest of the year. So we have to, to live this idea of what does our citizenship look like. In fact, Paul in Philippians, Philippians 3.20 says, we are called to live, our citizenship is in heaven. He says this to this group of uh, believers in the church at Philippi. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so often what we think that means is it's, again, some other time and some other place. But N.T. Wright says this, and I think it's really helpful as we continue this conversation of what is this kingdom. says, we are citizens of heaven, Paul declares in verse 20. At once, many modern Christians misunderstand what he means. He naturally supposes, we naturally suppose he means, and so we're waiting until we can go and live in heaven where we belong. But that's not what he says. Certainly not what he means. If someone in Philippi said, we are citizens of Rome, they certainly would mean, so we look forward to going to live there. Being a colony works the other way around. The last thing the emperor wanted was a whole lot of colonists coming back to Rome. No, the task of Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece to expand Roman influence there. And then he continues. That is the picture Paul has in mind in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3 of Philippians. The church is at present a colony of heaven with a responsibility, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, for bringing the life and rule of heaven to bear on earth. The life and rule of heaven to bear on earth. That is a perfect description of what it means to be about the kingdom in the here and the now. The rule and life of heaven. And so we've been looking at all these parables, these kingdom parables, about what does it look like uh, that Jesus, how he wants us to live this upside down way in the midst of our reality. In Matthew 13, we've been looking at, we looked at the parable of the wheat in the weeds, and we talked about how the judgment of God is in God's hands. It is not in ours. We aren't the ones who determine who, quote unquote, who's in and who's out. We don't play God. We don't play king. 
The kingdom of God is a kingdom where God will set things right. He will take care. He will destroy and get rid of evil. It will happen. God will set it right. We looked at the kingdom parable in the mustard seed. And the fact that the kingdom of God starts small. You know, we talked about how it's like in an out-of-the-way place, in the armpit, if you will, of the Roman Empire, and how down through the ages and across the world, the kingdom just spread like a mustard seed. And we talked about that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that, unlike a lot of empires, don't, doesn't exist for itself. Rome existed for Rome's benefit. The British colony existed for the British rule. The United States Empire would benefit for itself. The kingdom is for the benefit of others. It exists to be a kingdom of shalom in the midst of brokenness and fragmentation. We looked at the parable of the yeast and how just like when yeast is put in the bread and into the bread, it spreads and works its way all the way through. So is like the kingdom. In fact, Jesus tells all these ordinary stories that I'm pretty sure that when you saw a woman baking bread like the next day, the next week, the next year, you couldn't help but think, hey, remember when Jesus told us that parable? Remember what he meant? It would just remind you every week, every day when you saw a woman or when you saw a farmer. We talked about the hidden treasure and the pearl and how this king has purchased us that we are the pearl of great price we are the treasure and it cost him his life and lastly we talked about the net and again that this net will uh, come to bear on the whole world and it's an inclusive kingdom for all who want to follow under the ray of King Jesus and live out the kingdom so our last look in this kingdom parable series is the unmerciful servant found in Matthew 18. And this is, and this, is this text that we're going to look at that is all about forgiveness and unforgiveness. And so, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to 
to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So what we see in this is in Matthew 18, in the context of this text, is what we see is Jesus is talking about six different practices, kingdom practices, that should define those who follow the way of Jesus. Maybe, you know, sex, community, practice, community practices or kingdom practices. And so in verse 1 to 5, we find a kingdom practice of renouncing the quest for greatness. And then in verses 4 to 5, the kingdom practice of embracing the powerless and the margin, marginality of a child. Verses 6 to 9 contain the kingdom practice of not causing others or oneself to stumble. Verse 10 is the kingdom practice of not despising others. The fifth kingdom practice is restoring community made uh, to those who have gone astray in verses 11 to 5, 15. And then lastly, there was these two kind of sides of a coin. The kingdom practice of and process of reconciliation in the text 15 to 20. And, the, and, and what we're looking at now, the kingdom practice of forgiveness. And so, he's, he, so in this text in Matthew 18, Jesus is saying... Here is what defines kingdom citizens. Some practices that we should embody and embrace and live into. And so he gets to forgiveness and he begins to... This parable comes out of a question that Peter has. And so we don't know, like, does Peter have an issue with somebody? Another disciple? Is there something going on? Is there some unforgiveness? And he's like, hey, Jesus, like, so how many times should I forgive someone? You know, maybe, maybe one of those other disciples had done something that wronged Peter. And maybe he did it again, and then he did it again. And so Peter's asking, like, well, like when do I just cut him off? When do I just say, nope, you are, you've run out of my grace and my mercy. That's, you, 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 went, you, you uh, made the water run out. There's no more. And then he says, trying to, I think, look really good. Like, hey, Jesus, I am like, I'm like really spiritual because I am up, up to seven times. Like, like, that's a lot, right? So like, tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I have it. I'm really deep and I'm really spiritual if I forgive someone seven times. But Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times, or some texts say 70 times 7, or 490 times. And, and Jesus is not saying, no, no, you know, okay, once you hit, if it's 77 times, once you hit the 78th time, that, then you write them off. Or if you, write, if you get to 491st time, you write them off. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be keeping track. You shouldn't be keeping us a ledger. Well, there's one forgiveness for you. There's two forgiveness. Like, because if that was the case, would Jesus have kept the ledger for us? Because I'm so sure that I've run out more than 491 times. I didn't hit 491 and Jesus just said, oh, no, you're done. You're written off. In fact, the funny thing is, he's also not just making it up. He's just not making, okay, let's see, 70 times 7 or... 490, you know, like he's not making it up. In fact, in, in a, a commentary I found, uh, the writer, Stanley 
Sanders says this. It mirrors the number. It mirrors the boast of Cain's descent, descendant Lamech in Genesis 4, who brags that the mortal vengeance he has extracted against the young man who hurt him far exceeds God's promise of sevenfold punishment against anyone who might kill Cain. And so Jesus is calling his community of disciples to participate in undoing the curse of Cain and Lamech that has kept their offspring trapped in, in spasms of envy, hatred, violence, and retribution across the generations to this day. And so what we're saying at, is in, in this case, in order for Peter and other followers of Jesus to understand and embrace the limitlessness of God's forgiveness and then extend it out from us to others. The limitlessness of forgiveness, God wants us to embrace and extend. And so he tells, just like so often is the case, he tells a story to get his people and us to understand what this life is like under the king and living the kingdom. And so he tells them this story of a king, and he says, okay, this king has accounts with his servants, and he's going to settle up these accounts. But think of it this way. Think of what he's picturing is a, a, a pyramid with the king at the top, then you have middle managers, and then you have the bottom servants. So the unmerciful servant is kind of like a middle management position. So the king has middle management under the him, and the middle management have people under them. And the goal and the process for this is that all power and wealth and prosperity would flow from the bottom up to the top. And so the servant's jobs is to make sure that wealth gets driven to the king. So the middle manager, this unforgiving servant, then part of, part of each servant's role is to say, okay, how much can I kind of skim off the top for myself while still pushing wealth up? A lot of tax collectors would do this. They would tax at a certain rate, and then they would take some money and then pass on what they, what they needed to. And so supposedly this unforgiving servant may have taken up too much. Like he, he, his skim got bigger and bigger because he's like, oh, you know, I, I got away with this. Maybe I can get away with more. Well, it realizes that he started taking more than he could pay back. And he, so he racks up a, this debt that he couldn't pay. In fact, the debt, like if you, if you just do the numbers, some, some texts say 10,000 uh, things of gold or 10,000 Talents. Now, talents are our measure of weight, about 130 pounds. So a talent is 130 pounds. Now, we don't, we don't do our, our payment in pounds. Like we don't um, do it in, in weight. What do we do it in? We do it in you know, dollars or, or whatever. But a talent, well, think of this, was one talent, 15 years, is a, 15 years of wages. Right, let's do the math. I'm not good at math, so I had to figure this out. One talent, 15 years. 10,000 talents, 150,000 years of labor. 
he racked up 150,000 years worth of labor. Or, put in another way, 3,000 financial life sentences. Lots of debt, right? I don't even know how he got that much debt written, ranked up. And then what's really funny is, do you hear what he says? He comes, he racks up this whole debt. And so, it, it's this idea, it's not... It's not just, again, like the number 70 times 7. It's not just the number 150,000 years of, of wages. It's this enormity, this, this gigantic number that is a debt beyond what he could pay. I mean, he says this. He says, have mercy on me and I will pay this debt. There is no way that he can pay the debt. Unless he thinks he can live 150,000 years. It's a debt that he can't pay. But yet he says, I will. No, you won't. You, it is beyond your capability to pay it. I mean, it, was, it wasn't beyond your ability to rack it up, but it was beyond your capability to pay it. And so the man with this unpayable debt begs the king for mercy. He not only gives him mercy, he just wipes it away. Can you imagine having a debt that you couldn't pay? begging for mercy, and then being wiped clean. Racking up a credit card debt, not being able to pay it, and then the next bill, it just says, balance owed, zero. If we follow the way of King Jesus, that's exactly what has happened. We have racked up a debt that we couldn't owe that is wiped clean. Now, what should happen then is the king passes down jubilee to this servant. What should happen because of this freeing from under the weight of debt and guilt and struggle and pain and being free from that that person should then turn around and give jubilee to under, someone underneath him, this other servant. It should work its way out from the, that servant and throughout the whole system, but that's not what happens. Jubilee gets short-circuited. The, 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 it's circumvented by the one who experienced the grace and the mercy. He, he short-circuits the process. Because after receiving this jubilee, after getting out from under this debt that he couldn't pay, he bumps into someone who owes him a smaller debt. My text said 100 denarii. You might get 100 silver coins. Now, 100 denarii, a denarii was one day's wages for an average worker. So, figure it out. One denarii, 100 a hundred denarii would be 100 days of work. So not even a year. Like less than half, less than half a year's worth of wages. Half a year, 150,000 years. And the man who experienced jubilee and freedom turns around and says, pay me what you owe me. And the response is the exact same. Have mercy on me and I will pay it back. And it's very feasible that this man, this servant, 
could have paid back these hundred days of work. The forgiveness that this servant experienced did not work its way into his heart. Did not really free him. Because you see he's still bound in chains. His unforgiveness, his lack of extending grace and compassion and jubilee that he did not extend finds him out. Because the other servants realize this man who experienced this radical forgiveness chose to not extend this radical forgiveness. And so it says he gets punished and tortured because he did not extend the forgiveness. And that at the end, it's this, it's like Jesus is telling a story, and if he had a mic, it would have been like this. Boom. Just drop it. Because he says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. What does it mean to live an upside-down kingdom? It means that it's about forgiveness. It's a, a kingdom that's driven by forgiveness. God's forgiveness to us and our forgiveness of each other. Forgiveness costs, right? It costs Jesus everything. In fact, actually, as a song, and I was, I was, as I was writing this, and I was like, I didn't want to reach out to Laura. I wanted to see if, like, somehow she happened to have the song the same pick, but she didn't, which is fine, which is fine. But the one song, Oh, Come to the Altar, talks about how our, our sin was bought with the precious blood of Christ. So forgiveness is bought through Jesus. That you and I, our sin, is like that 150,000 years of unpayable debt that we can't clear ourselves. It's impossible. It's like if we like Jesus, just let me like work it off. You can never work it off. You can never get God into your debt. All the brokenness, all the sin... Everything that you and I do, we come to him and he wipes it away through his death. I don't understand it. So what's interesting too is, and maybe you have this experience too, is, no, no, Jesus, I won't do X again. Forgive me of X, I won't ever do it again. A week later, guess what you're doing? X. And you come back to Jesus and you say, forgive me for doing X. And it's not like he just goes... Didn't you just do this last week? And you told me the same very thing that you told me you wouldn't do and you're doing it again. Nope, not this time. That's not how God works, right? Like, and I don't know, I'm, going, I'm grateful for that. That's not the way that God works. It does not work that way. No. In fact, through the incarnation, mission, ministry, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus, shalom, Wholeness, healing, reconciliation, forgiveness, mercy, grace, all those things are available to us and to all people. And then here's where it is. Because you have experienced that grace and that forgiveness of an unpayable debt, what Jesus says now is that we are to turn around and extend grace and forgiveness to other people. 
Think of it like this. Forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. You only have so much air in your lungs if you're holding it in. To inhale another breath of air, you have to let one out. You breathe it in. If you're unwilling to breathe it out, well, one, you die. But number two, you can't, you can't just keep breathing in. You have to expel it out and then breathe it in. You can only breathe in the forgiveness granted you by God when you breathe it out to other people. The question is, are you open or closed to forgiveness? If you're open and willing and able to forgive others, you're open to, really, to receive God's love and forgiveness. If you're open and willing, you can extend that. If you receive God's forgiveness, then how can we become vessels of God's forgiveness to other people? Now, just a couple things that we need to talk about. One, Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Too often, when I said in my prayer, is this text is weaponized to say you should forgive everybody no matter what. Which means then you should be forgive and you forget. That's impossible. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Jesus is saying you should forgive someone. But he's not saying that you should reconcile holistically no matter what. And let me just be clear. There are some things, and I'm saying yes, there are people that you should forgive and it is a process and it takes time and pain and work. You need to get a place of forgiveness because a lot of times unforgiveness destroys you internally. But there are some people that you should not be reconciled to who are just toxic and detrimental. That doesn't mean you can't forgive them for what they did to you. But that also means you don't open yourself up for re- being reabused. You know, there are too many stories of women who go to pastors who have been beaten by their husbands and say, "What should I do? Should I divorce them?" And the pastor says, "Don't divorce them." And I tell you right now, that's the wrong advice. The wrong advice. Yes, forgive, but reconciliation is separate. Secondly, forgiveness is a process. It doesn't just happen. It takes time. It takes work. It takes effort. It may take years. But it's a process. Let that process happen. Get to a place where you can extend forgiveness. That person may never receive it. But again, it's not about that person. It's about what unforgiveness is doing in your life. If you are letting in unforgiveness in your life build up like air in your lungs, that air becomes toxic, right? And you can't live until you expel it. Unforgiveness will destroy you from the inside out. So it's a process. And if, I, if you and I end up with the same issue, if we face the same struggle, and I am able to forgive this person like after you know, two weeks and you can't get there, it's fine. Like, 
the process is what matters. And lastly, and kind of connected to something that I said earlier, I found this quote and I thought it was just really, really good. Forgiveness doesn't mean the embrace of violence perpetuated against us. It doesn't mean giving free reign to those who would do us harm. It doesn't mean a ready acquiescence to this, who are, to those who are stronger than us. The context of these teachings is key. Forgiveness is a gift of grace, a reflection of God's love, not the curse of abuse or a reaction of our worst tendency as humans. Because I think too often, as I said earlier, we weaponize, we can weaponize this next way too easily, way too often. So the questions that we're going to talk about is, where have you experienced God's forgiveness? Because this is the thing. Without understanding God's forgiveness, it is really hard to forgive other people. Forgiveness of ourselves and other people. Where have you experienced those things? To root yourself in that forgiveness so that understand then turn around and give that forgiveness to other people. Are there people in your own life that you need to continue that process of working through unforgiveness and forgive them and not saying, well, if I forgive them, then they're freed from the pain they caused me. No, no, that's not how it works. But to forgive them and then let the reconciliation thing be another question. I'm saying, yes, I can reconcile. No, I can't. That's another question. But we're going to dialogue together and see what this looks like to apply this, this text in a way that is faithful to Jesus in the way of the kingdom.